And now for something completely different. Forget everything you've been told by others before. Get ready for the real deal. The full story. Real talk about money, markets, life. Now, it's The Real Investment Show with Lance Roberts. Presented by RIA Advisors. And good morning and welcome to the show. Of course, it is, uh, well, you know, getting into the hump day edition of The Real Investment Show. I'm your host, Lance Roberts, this morning. Um, this morning, of course, the news, right? So yesterday we had talked about with tax day behind us, which was on Monday, everybody had to basically sell stuff to meet their tax payments. So we got some sloppy trading on Monday. Tuesday, really good day in the markets. Uh, markets rallied back above the 50-day moving average. Nice move. And again, you know, we had talked about just recently this you know, conversation about setting stops and the market had broke the 50-day moving average. I was getting a lot of emails. It's like, well, we've been stopped out of the market. You know, what should we be doing now? And, you know, the problem was is we never, while we did violate the 50-day moving average, it was never, never by a significant amount. And, you know, this is the one thing. There's, there's a little bit of art to stop losses. And, and this is what happens from time to time is that you'll break a level and then, you'll immediately recover right back above it. And, and you're like, well, I shouldn't have sold, right? And then, so then people get frustrated. They just stop using stop losses because it obviously doesn't work. So again, what you're looking for is a failure at that level that confirms the break has actually occurred. And yesterday we reversed right back above the 50-day moving average, putting that support now back into place. So, you know, if you were stopped out now, well, you've got to be buying back in because the market's buy back, you know, is back above the 50-day moving average. Now this morning, unfortunately, um, we're gonna, the markets are going to start out a little bit weak, but we've got a lot of earnings coming out. We have now just officially kicked off earnings season this week, and particularly next week, are going to be very, very heavy earnings. After the bell today, of course, Tesla, everybody will be watching Tesla to see what they say about their car sales, what's happening on their income front. But Procter & Gamble before the bell today, Abbott Labs, we've got a lot of big companies that are coming out. And that's going to really start to ramp up here over the next really you know two weeks. So we're going to have a lot of earnings coming in to help support the markets. Netflix kicked off the ball yesterday, not in a good way. Stock's going to be down about 25%. Uh, they've lost subscribers now for two quarters in a row. They had basically in, in, the, in the fourth quarter earnings report, they noted that their subscribers growth was really slowing down and, and there was actually a slight net, very slight net loss of subscribers in quarter four. Quarter one, two million subscribers they lost. And this really isn't surprising. And I, I'm not sure why anybody's really surprised by this. It's like, oh my gosh, you know, they're losing subscribers. There's too many competitors now. You know, the only, the only service that probably has worse programming than Netflix is CNN Plus. But... Um, I'm joking. I'm joking. We watch Netflix. There's every now and then they have something good. Uh, but again, you know, the problem is, is there's too many, too many streaming services. You've got Paramount Plus, Disney Plus, um, Netflix, um, you know, um, HBO Max. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. Everybody's come out with a streaming service now because they're all trying to monetize their business, right? It makes complete sense. But if you remember this, this was something that Brent and I talked about early on when this whole, you remember this whole movement about four years ago, cut the cord. We're all going to cut that expensive cable bill, right? Where they bundle, no more bundling. We're, you know, we want to just a la carte everything. 
well, a la carte is fine until you've got a $20 subscription to this and a $10 subscription to that and a $30 subscription to this other thing trying to get all the programming you want and you go back and look and my cable bill really wasn't all that much because that you know the power of the bundling was to get lower rates and all this other stuff and I suspect that in it won't be too much longer probably in the next, and this is something we said a couple of years ago is that at some point in the future we're all going to go back to bundling um, somebody will come out figure out a way to to cut deals with Netflix and Disney Plus and Paramount and everybody else and say, look, you know, we're going to bring you a lot of subscribers. You're going to give us a discount on all your services. We're going to bundle the package. And that'll probably ultimately be a, a Comcast or somebody that, that winds up putting this all together. Um, but, but again, this is just the function is that as people are coming up, they're now starting to realize they're getting, they're getting feed to death. Right. You're getting, you know, you've got so much money coming in every month and then you look at your outflows and once you subscribe to these services, this is something that Richard Rosso talks about from time to time on Fridays, talking about financial planning, um, is that, you know, you've got to really keep up with this stuff because first thing you know is, you know, several months have gone by and you haven't watched some channel. You haven't gone to the gym that you have that membership for. You, you haven't done some other service that you're paying for in months and months and months. And these things just keep accumulating on, on your bills, right? I mean, you just keep paying for this stuff and it, and it all adds up. And before you know it, you're paying an extra two or $300 a month going out the door for stuff you're not even using. And so, you know, it, this isn't surprising. The competition level for streaming services is really high now. And the problem is there's not enough really good content to now justify, you know, all these different services. I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting now, if you look at the movies that are coming out, the movies are coming out very fast. They're going you know, straight to streaming services, whether it's Netflix or Amazon Prime, forgot about them, um, you know, or, or HBO Max, wherever it is. And they're okay movies, but they're not great. It's, it's almost to the function of like, if you can write a script and send it to Hollywood, they'll pretty much make it into a movie now because they just need the content. And it doesn't even have to be good content, but they just need content to get out there to keep people coming back to their services. And, you know, used to, we had to wait for movies to come out. They were, you know, block, big blockbuster movies. And, and now we're just churning this stuff out. Look, and this has been great for the careers of people like Bruce Willis and, and Jean-Claude Van Damme and a bunch of other people that just crank out, you know, really B, C rated movies, but they're able to do it on a very fast basis. Liam Neeson, he's 900 years old now, still doing versions of Taken, right? I mean, you know, the guy's got a steady workflow for low budget action films, but this is what we've kind of come to because of this need, this demand for content everywhere you look, whether it's, oh, I forgot YouTube, right? YouTube as well. So, you know, YouTube, all these things are all buying for that, that very slender consumer dollar. So this isn't surprising that Netflix has finally run into some trouble. Uh, stock's going to be down 25% this morning. That's going to weigh on the NASDAQ a bit. Um, but again, we've got a lot of earnings coming out. So this morning, as we start to see other earnings come out, we may see the markets kind of turn around here. Normally after tax day, and this is what I was talking about, you had the selling going into tax day for people that had a lot of capital gains. There was a lot of retail trading last year. A lot of people made a lot of money capital gains wise. This year hasn't been so good for them and they haven't really reserved a lot of that cash. In fact, a lot of these people that were chasing a lot of those meme stocks lost most of their money after they, they had their gains. 
So now they're having to sell stuff to make that tax payment. And so that's now behind us. That was over on Monday. Tuesday, saw this rally. Still expect to kind of see this rally continue. Again, markets are overbought, oversold here on a short-term basis. On a really short-term basis, if we take a look at some of the short-term indicators, we have a buy signal for the markets from yesterday. That should give the markets a little bit of lift here over the next week or so, particularly if, as expected, earnings for a lot of these companies continues to, to do well. Again, this is the first quarter that we're seeing kind of that post-monetary fiscal policy that we had flowing into the markets that really boosted earnings and profit margins last year. There's still a little bit of that effect this fourth, this first quarter. Now, once we get the second quarter, more and more of that's going to tail off. Inflation is going to become a bigger problem for, for corporate earnings and profit margins. But right now, um, we still should have a fairly decent earnings quarter that should help support markets here short term. Um, but when we come back from the breaks, got a lot of stuff to get into this morning. Danny Ratliff joining me as well. But one thing that I want to touch on is this idea about QE and QT, uh, quantitative easing, quantitative tightening, and its impact on inflation. Don't go away. More on that coming up right after the break. Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. We're all impacted by the significance of the passage of time, especially when it comes to signing up for Medicare. When should you enroll? What's the best plan for you? How will the significant passage of time adversely affect your Medicare premium? Join Richard Rosso and Danny Ratliff for our next virtual lunch and learn on Medicare, avoiding pitfalls and permanent penalties. Thursday, April 21st. Register now at realinvestmentadvice.com for our next free lunch and learn to avoid the pitfalls and permanent penalties of Medicare. Realinvestmentadvice.com. The Real Investment Show. And welcome back to the show this morning. I'm Rose Lance Roberts. Danny Ratliff joining me as well, of course, as. We look to see how the markets are going to open this morning. That's going to be the kind of the, the big thing. Of course, Netflix weighing on the NASDAQ. Dow looks to be pointing up here just a bit. And again, NASDAQ's only down just a fraction. And a lot of that, because of the size and the weight of Netflix in the NASDAQ market, that's you know going to weigh on the NASDAQ a bit today. But it uh, doesn't necessarily mean that all stocks are negative today. It just means that Netflix is going to be really negative. Um, but this morning, we've got... Earnings coming out from Anthem, the NASDAQ itself, uh, Baker Hughes, Procter Gamble, Abbott Laboratories. Uh, Procter Gamble and Abbott Laboratories are two stocks we hold in our portfolios. Um, after the market, we've got CSX, Kinder Morgan, Alcoa. Ten- Alcoa is kind of always the bellwether for the kickoff of the earnings season. Right? That's everybody one looks at. Uh, Crown Castle International, uh, United Airlines, Steel Dynamics, Equifax, and then after uh, also Tesla. That'll be the big report kind of after the bell today. So, again, this is just now the kickoff, and over the course of the next really two to three weeks, we're going to have just a deluge of earnings to really kind of digest. And, and again, what's going to be important, it's not going to be what, say, for instance, you know, Tesla's expected to announce uh, $2.27 per share on about $18 billion worth of sales. That's re- what's really going to be important and not just for Tesla, for all companies, is not what they say about their earnings. If they report earnings in line, that's great. But what's going to be important is what they say, and this is the problem with Netflix, 
is what they say about the rest of this year. Inflation, interest rates, consumer demand, those are those are going to be the key profit margins. Those are going to be the key things that the market's going to really be focusing on. It's going to be more about the outlook than the actual report. So you may see companies, and I always get a lot of emails, is, I don't understand, you know, ABC company reported great earnings. Yeah, but their outlook was terrible, so the stock's down 20%. So that's going to be the real trick here. It's going to be a difficult... You know, you may think that you've got a really good company in your portfolio, and then you're going to wake up one morning, the stock's going to be down 10, 15, 20% because of the outlook. So again, you've got to really kind of look at your portfolio and say, what do I own? And what's the risk to their earnings because of interest rates, inflation? Are they a function of something that is interest rate related? Are they a function of something that is inflation related in a bad way? In a bad way. So for instance, an oil and gas company, that's great. Oil prices are up. Their profit margins are up. So those reports should be fairly good. In fact, a big chunk, in fact, almost all of the increase in profit margins for the first quarter are coming from energy. Everything else is going to be a drag. But, you know, so just look at what you own and make sure that there's not potentially something hiding in there that could, you know, really impair your portfolio pretty quickly. It's just a thought process. Um, as we go through this. So good morning, Danny. How are you? Good morning. Doing great. Good. That's a really good point. You know, I think a lot of people look at past results and past returns and think, wow, this has been a great company. And then you think, oh, this is going to continue to be great, which it may not be a poor choice or investment. However, you know, we're looking at a lot of a lot of headwinds in the future and those need to be considered. Well, not only that, though, a lot of these companies are trading at huge valuations. Yeah. Um, you know, you take a look at companies like uh, Procter & Gamble as an example. You know, this is a company that everybody continues to kind of a stayed true value stock, right? This is a value-oriented stock. In fact, it's in the value indexes, so it must be a value, right? Mm -hmm. You know, here's a stock that trade. It's Procter & Gamble trading at tech-like levels. It trades at 25 times forward earnings, nearly 40 times trailing earnings, and a price-to-sales ratio of almost five. So, I mean, that is vastly, vastly expensive. And so this is why there's a real risk that if we do have, you know, pressure on profit margins, higher inflation, interest rates weighing on earnings, et cetera, there's, there's a lot of room for these stocks to correct. They've had huge run-ups since 2020. And the correction just back, and they were expensive back in 2020. So a correction back to 2020 levels would be huge for these companies. And it's certainly possible, and they would still be expensive. Yeah. So, you know, these, that's that's the risk. It's because of all this liquidity inflow that we had from on the fiscal side of the ledger that is now creating the inflation. You know, the reversal of that liquidity is a major headwind for stocks. And again, so disappointment is going to be a real risk for a lot of companies. And again, doesn't mean it's going to happen, but that's the thing you've really got to kind of watch out for. Because, uh, again, you know, when we, we you know, Really is a is a reduction. You know, the stock Netflix stock is already down twenty percent from its previous peak, or more actually. Um, it's going to be down another twenty five percent this morning. So, is cutting Netflix price basically in half over the last four months justified just a two million subscriber net withdrawal? But the point is, the stock was so overly valued; it's just now trying to catch up with real valuation, and those price drops can be fairly large. So. When you think about that overvaluation and the environment that we were in with everybody being locked down, I mean, you know, everybody was looking at Netflix, right? But the competition has gotten that much greater mm -hmm. as well. So it's not that they're not the only guy out there. There's a lot of people in that in that realm. So 
that's going to be another difficult thing. I think that they're going to have to navigate and continue to pump out, you know, more and more content. Yeah. Well, again, then good content. Yeah. Because the content's the not been content's not been great. It has been rather poor. <laughs> so, um, one thing I wanted to touch on, I got a, I, I've been getting a lot of emails lately about the Fed and quantitative tightening, and you know, the Fed's going to be pulling liquidity out of the markets and. When they reverse back to QE from QT, then that's going to be even more inflationary. And so we already have this inflation problem going on. And now when the Fed realizes they're in trouble and they go back to QE, that's going to even add to the inflation. Uh, I just wanted to clarify something real quick. That's not true. Quantitative easing is not inflationary. We've had a decade, more than a decade of experience with quantitative easing, and it did not produce inflation. And the reason that it did not produce inflation is that it is not an increase in the money supply. What? So how did we wind up with inflation, right? The Fed was doing QE in, in 2020, 2021. So what do you mean it didn't cause inflation? QE didn't cause the inflation. We've had QE before. We had QE one, two, three, four, quantity, you know, uh, Operation Twist, you name it, and we didn't have inflation. So why did QE cause inflation? Now it didn't. Q quantitative easing is an asset swap. All the all the Federal Reserve is doing is crediting the 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 overnight reserves or, or the excess reserves of banks in exchange for an asset. So there is an exchange of reserves for an asset. And basically, they're just swapping credits on books. That's, that's all this is. It's not increasing the money supply. So, Lance, why do we have inflation? We have inflation because the government sent $5 trillion worth of liquidity directly to households through the forms of direct checks to households, uh, unemployment benefit expansion, child tax credit expansion. I'm sure I'm probably missing some other stuff that we gave people along the way. That money was an increase in the money supply. The savings of households actually increased. And they went out and spent it. And they spent it at a time that there was no production because we shut down the economy. So that's why you have inflation. QE is not inflationary. In fact, QE is more deflationary than it is inflationary uh, really over time. And that's what that's what history tells us, right? If we just look at inflation rates, we were around 2%. The Fed couldn't get above 2%, no matter how much QE they did. And that really tells you the, the, the real story behind, behind QE and QT. Yes, it inflates asset markets. So if you want to talk about inflation, yes, it inflates asset prices because the banks are dropping that money directly into assets and it increases the psychology of investors. But it doesn't create economic inflation through higher prices. What that is caused by is money sent to households, that increase in the monetary supply that increases demand more than the supply is able to meet. And then when that occurs, and it's simple, simple economics 101, if you have demand greater than supply, prices go up. If supply is greater than demand, prices go down. So as we begin to get supply back online if you take a look at what's happening with inventories inventories are rising and they're rising rather rapidly capacity utilization rates are, are are near the highest levels they've been in a decade as companies are just trying to produce everything they can right now to meet what was demand and now demand's going to start to fall off because of higher prices inflation is a cure you know high prices are, are a cure for high prices but also there's a reversal of that liquidity that liquidity is now gone and there's no kind of 
you know, um, policy prescription on the horizon that the Democrats are going to come out and do another $5 billion, trillion, whatever, trillion dollars worth of spending and sending checks to households. That doesn't seem to be on the horizon. So as that money goes away, demand will fall, supply is rising, and the opposite process of when supply outstrips demand is ultimately deflation. I know that's hard to understand right now, and I certainly know that's certainly hard to believe right now, but as we get later into this year and next year, we'll start talking more and more about deflationary headwinds. Danny? Well, I think that's a really good point. You know, I'm, I'm hearing from many different people as well, and, and especially people who are dealing with materials, you know, uh, uh, window makers, steel, aluminum, those things that have gone up exponentially. Mm-hmm. And a lot of these guys say, look, prices are never coming down. And we have the same argument that, you know, high prices cure high prices. Right. And essentially people will be priced out. And, you know, you made a good point about the monetary and fiscal policy that we've seen, especially, you know, giving all these checks to households and then creating your own inflation by shutting down the economy. I think this is a really crucial point because we impacted the supply and then we gave everybody a bunch of money. We said, hey, don't worry about paying your rent, your mortgage. None of these things. Oh, yeah, I forgot all that. Yeah. Yeah. And so so now people say, well, shoot, I don't have to pay these these things that I typically do now will go out and you created that additional demand because people think they have extra money in their pocket and you're always going to have that safety net. And to some extent, I don't know, will, there'll, there'll always be something. Right. I mean, look, we're in an election year. What do you think? We got four or five months before we see our next stimulus check? <laughs> we'll, we'll see. Hey, man, it's electable. That, no, no. It, it, look, and uh, let me be clear. Is that... When we get into the next recession, it doesn't matter who's in charge. Yeah. There's more checks going to households because this is now the new remedy to stay in office, which is to send checks to households. And it doesn't matter whether you're conservative, Democrat, far right, far left. Everybody's got the same policy for getting votes. Yeah, but when do you start paying for it? That's the, that's the real You're question. paying for it now. Yeah, but when do you really, really start paying for it? Well, that's it's coming. Fortunately, that will be our generation. That'll be your kids. That's scary. Yeah. Be right back after the break. The Real Investment Advice blog. It's required reading for the informed investor. Catch it today at realinvestmentadvice.com. We're all impacted by the significance of the passage of time, especially when it comes to signing up for Medicare. When should you enroll? What's the best plan for you? How will the significant passage of time adversely affect your Medicare premiums? Join Richard Rosso and Danny Ratliff for our next virtual lunch and learn on Medicare, avoiding pitfalls and permanent penalties. Thursday, April 21st. Register now at realinvestmentadvice.com for our next free lunch and learn to avoid the pitfalls and permanent penalties of Medicare. Realinvestmentadvice.com. You're listening to The Real Investment Show. And welcome back to the show. I'm Real Science Travers. Danny Ratliff joining me as well. Talking a little bit about taxes. You know, it's always interesting that, you know, People are, you know, trading in the markets and they're making a lot of money and they forget about the tax bill that eventually comes due. And then they're upset because they've got to pay the government taxes. And I look, I know it's not fair. Right. But it's the way the system works. And, you know, this is this is always kind of an interesting problem that we run into because, you know, there's there's a issue of paying taxes today versus paying taxes later. Right. And and 
if you have all your money in an IRA, that's great. You can trade your brains out today, but you also lose tax benefit in the short term because you can't offset your losers against your gainers and, and, and control your taxable outcome, right? So your losers just impair your capital. Your winners increase your capital. And if you have more losers than winners, that doesn't work out well. But eventually, at the end of the day, you're paying taxes on everything out of the IRA, right? When you take the money out, you're paying income tax on it, regardless of whether it was a gain or a loss or whatever. It doesn't matter. So there's some advantages to deferring taxes in an IRA. There's some advantages to paying your taxes along the way in a taxable account. Because, again, you do have you can do some tax mitigation, by offsetting gainers and losers and, you know, holding, you know, longer than one year to get long-term capital gains versus short-term capital gains, those type of things. But the other side of this is also understanding that most likely, because we were just talking about a second ago, taxes are going to go up at some point. There's virtually no way. And again, that's, you know, we can always go with, with government stupidity, but at some point taxes are going to have to go up in order to pay the debt. If interest rates, uh, interest rates are rising right now, right? The, the debt service requirement of the federal government is surging sharply right now. That's going to increase more, more of the deficit. In fact, probably as we get into next year and we look back at the, at what we spent money on, we will find out that we spent more than 100 cents of every dollar on every every tax dollar of revenue that came in just on Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, prescription drug benefits, and interest on the debt, which is our mandatory spending. Everything else is going to be paid for out of debt. So taxes are eventually going to have to go up. But this is one of the challenges that, you know, Danny works with a lot with individuals is the balance between deferring taxes trying to delay taxes and paying taxes now to protect capital because there's only one surefire way never to pay taxes. That's to live off the government and not make any money and, <laughs> or in your investment account, always lose money. Right. And eventually you can only do that so long before you don't have any money, but that's the only way you're going to avoid paying taxes down the road. Well, taxes aren't necessarily a bad thing, Lance. I mean, it's, it means we're making money. We're doing okay. But right. at the same token, we have to realize that we do have to be strategic about how we're actually paying taxes and, and when we utilize different strategies for that matter. I mean, the whole goal is to keep more money in your pocket. So you know, when we talk about IRAs, retirement accounts, we often describe them as it's a partnership between you and Uncle Sam. And many people, the kind of the light bulb typically will go off and say, wow, I never thought of it that way. So it's a unique partnership where you, know, you own a business and your business partner can change their percentage of ownership at any given time. Mm -hmm. And you have no control over it. And so this is why when we're in an environment like we're in now, you just mentioned the deficit is going to continue to increase. It's only getting bigger as interest rates continue to rise, uh, which is another reason why they probably can't get too high. But the other aspect of this is, is that we want to make sure that you keep as much money in your pocket all along the way. And, you know, so we hear a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of feedback from different people saying, my advisor sold this or we had X amount that we had to pay in taxes. You know, last year was an interesting year. I mean, especially for us, I think we could sell one thing at the end of the year that we could tax loss harvest against. So there weren't as many ways that we could, you know, historically, you know, I'd like to say every year, you know, we only have one or zero that, that don't go Not down, right? I mean, pat yourself on the back. I'm going to give Lance a big head here. Here we go. Uh, but these are things that I think are extremely important. And, you know, last year was an interesting year as well, where we had a very strong push to raise taxes. And so if you were thinking about, hey, maybe getting ahead of that curve and 
going ahead and taking some of those and realizing some gains, that probably wasn't a bad idea because what they actually did on the last bill they tried to get through, I believe it was September 13th, they came out and said, anything from this point forward will be retroactive um, because this bill is being pushed forward. So they didn't want anybody to be able to, to take any action afterwards. So you likely did a good thing. I think that, you know, big picture, taxes will have to increase. We're seeing a lot of different pushes from different directions. We saw, once again, shoot, even Joe Manchin came out about two or three weeks ago and said he was for for raising taxes. Now, granted, we have all these different pushes from different directions. Being an election year, we expect not, you know, much of this will not go too far. However, these are things that we have to keep in the forefront of our mind. And so, you know, we have a lot of people who are still holding on to realized gains, obviously seeing some choppiness in the market and that volatility and saying, is it time for me to go ahead and realize some of these gains? You know, we see this all the time. And Lance, how many times we've seen a, a gain turn into a loss? And people say, well, I didn't want to take the gain because I don't want to pay taxes. Right. Well, there's a surefire way to do it. You know, that and death are about the only way you're going to get a, get around this. And well, I, I don't think that anybody wants to see either one of those things occur. Yeah. And look, this is all about psychology, investor psychology. And we yeah. talk about the, you know, the, the pitfalls of investor psychology and you know, trying to avoid ta paying taxes is one surefire way to really impair your returns. And, you know, I look, nobody likes to pay, I don't like paying taxes. Right. No, no, nobody, nobody, no. nobody is nobody has little parties at their house on tax day. Right. I mean, it's just, you know, we're having tax day party coming over. I'm writing my check. I want everybody to watch. Right. Um, I don't know. Maybe they are. I bet liquors, yeah. liquor store sales. Elon, yeah. Don't complain about your tax bill until you pay Elon Musk's 11 billion. Right. You know, that's 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 a tax bill. But here's the point about this. It's always interesting to, to listen to investors. And, and I always get, you know, calls like this from time to time. It's like some position we'll have in our portfolio be down 5%, whatever. And, you know, we're building a longer term thesis on this particular position. Uh, we're, you know, trying to find entry points to build into a position. It's like, well, why don't we sell that and stop out of it? I get it, right? And, and sure, we can take that loss, no big deal. But the same mentality you know, doesn't apply when we're taking gains. Everybody's like, well, you know, why are, why are we selling it? It's going up is because it's super overbought and we don't want to give back all those gains. And Netflix is a good example of this. We sold Netflix months ago and took a gain in it and have put that in the book. So we're going to, so we paid tax on that Netflix trade this year, but isn't it better now than holding it being down another, you know, 30, 40% from where we sold it, right? So this is this is kind of the whole problem with psychology is separating out that, yeah, you may have to pay taxes on some gains, but it means you made money. And yeah, you don't get to keep all of it because you have to pay tax, but we can try to minimize that tax, like Danny said, through tax loss harvesting, try to, to try to make sure positions are you know, longer term, you know, long term gains versus short term gains. You know, there's a lot of things that we can do to help mitigate taxes, but trying to avoid them entirely is a psychological trap that you get yourself into that you wind up actually impairing your returns longer term. Actually, and, and more so trying to avoid paying taxes will wind up costing you more than paying the taxes. Yeah, and it, it, it typically does. And so there are other ways that you can also try to mitigate taxes. You know, we're just finishing up tax season, but, you know, we do have people that are, um, you know, a lot of pension people are, are saying, hey, my pension numbers are changing drastically with increase in interest rates. So we're seeing a lot of people go ahead and take early retirement or retire a little bit earlier than they historically would have. So there's a lot of people out there trying to figure out, okay, well, maybe you have other funds that are coming towards you, um, things that will be taxable in this year. And so we look at many different strategies. One can be setting up a donor advised fund, go ahead and bundling 
future contributions to a charity and putting that into this fund and then still contributing the same amount you would over this, a number of years. However, going ahead and getting a larger write-off for this year if you have a very large tax bill. There's a lot of little things that we can do, but I don't want people to be so you know, enamored with not paying taxes that you forget about you're paying taxes because you've made money. You've done things right in some ways. And you know we want to minimize and mitigate as much as we can, but we're not going to be able to typically get around them. I mean, there's a handful of routes that we can go, but to get there, it's, it's pretty costly. I mean, that's going to be Roth conversions, putting funds in. Like Lance, you talked the other day about uh, permanent life insurance policies, overfunding mm-hmm. those to accumulate cash value and withdraw without any any taxes. I mean, there's a lot of different strategies that can be utilized. But, you know, many times people go, it's, it's a little too late, Lance. I mean, many times we're, we're so, uh, I guess, uh, ingrained in putting these pre-tax dollars, pre-tax dollars. And then by the time somebody looks to retire, they may have accumulated quite a bit but they don't have as much flexibility as they historically would have or would if you would look at utilizing different strategies. That's right. But that's all part of that financial planning mumbo jumbo that you and Richard do. <laughs> uh, mumbo jumbo. <laughs> you know, it's so, like it's like it's like witchcraft they do over there with their financial planning you know, that, tools. That's kind of funny, right? Because you're dealing with something that's that's moving, right? I mean, markets, nobody knows exactly where they're going. We use technical analysis to get a pretty good indication yeah. and to increase or decrease exposure. But measurement and, of psychology. Yeah. But the other aspect of this is that what we're doing with the financial planning is we're helping people control things that they can actually control, right? I mean, right. we can make certain decisions and understand exactly what the impact, you know, negative, uh, you know, what the consequence will be one way or the other. So it's a little bit different than I think you. It, it, it's still in it's, witchcraft. It's, it's yeah, it's still voodoo. Go do that voodoo that you do so well. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh man, <laughs> these financial planner guys. Well, but so so speaking they are, of, they are you know. But honestly, though, financial plans are great. Honestly, they're they're one of the best things ever. If you have a financial plan and you have insomnia, it will cure it. Guaranteed. It, it, it can be paper Nyquil if you get a hard copy ad. <laughs> I'm teasing. No, Just joking. Financial planning is very important. I'm not sure for what, but it is very important. <laughs> I'm, I'm just joking. We'll be right back after the break. Don't go away. Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. We're all impacted by the significance of the passage of time, especially when it comes to signing up for Medicare. When should you enroll? What's the best plan for you? How will the significant passage of time adversely affect your Medicare premiums? Join Richard Rosso and Danny Ratliff for our next virtual lunch and learn on Medicare, avoiding pitfalls and permanent penalties. Thursday, April 21st. Register now at realinvestmentadvice.com for our our next free lunch and learn to avoid the pitfalls and permanent penalties of Medicare. Realinvestmentadvice.com. The Real Investment Show.
and welcome back to the show. You know, it's interesting when we're talking about, you know, markets, withdrawal rates, and, you know, paying taxes and these type of things. It's interesting when you go back and start talking about things like the 4% withdrawal rate, which is kind of this rule that's been around forever that, you know, you save up some money and then when you retire, you take out 4% of your money every year to live on. And that all sounds great. Right. And, and the theory is, is that I can, you know, my money should grow at greater than 4%. So all I'm doing is taking out the gains and say, if I'm making 6% a year on my money, I'm taking out four. That lets my portfolio continue to grow at two. And supposedly that outpaces inflation over time. Um, it all sounds great in theory. But the problem is, is that when a lot of these rules were put into place, it was back in the early 90s. And, you know, I, you know, it's always tickles me because I see a lot of, you know, articles and things written on CNBC and other places. And they're like, seven rules to invest your way to a million dollars. You can be a millionaire. And that's great, except the fact that a million dollars doesn't get you very far these days. And it sounds like a lot of money still. I mean, we talk about a million dollars. It's like, wow, a million dollars. That's a lot of money. Brent would like a million dollars. One million dollars. But it really doesn't get you that far. Back in, back in 1980, a million dollars would generate $120,000 a year to live on if you just bought treasuries. Today, it's about $29,000 a year. So if you can live on $29,000 a year with your Social Security, then a million dollars will probably do okay for you. But cost of living, et cetera, you know, the average cost of living is now over $67,000 a year. So it's, it's going to be more and more difficult just to maintain a standard of living in a low interest. And I know we we're talking about interest rates. Like, oh, my gosh, interest rates are 2.9%. 2.9% is incredibly low, right? It's up a lot from half a percent that we had last year. But 2.9% is still incredibly cheap financing for 10 years. And you, you think about that, right? It's just... And that's a function of debt and economic growth and a whole variety of things. But, you know, this is the problem with the 4% rule is that very likely that 4% rule is no longer effective anymore because of the rate of return of overvalued markets going forward and because of higher interest rates. Well, and that's right. So the 4% rule was, was created by Bill Benjamin back in 1994. And think about this. You were just talking about yields, Lance. The average yield was over 7% on a 10-year treasury. Mm -hmm. It topped out at over, it closed a year at over 8. I mean, that's a significant difference from where we are today. And so when you think about what you were expecting at that point from a market perspective, from interest rate perspective, it was, we were in a much different time. And so now we've been in lower for longer, and we've talked about what are some ways that you can actually protect yourself and things to make sure that you don't run into potential longevity risk, meaning living too long and running out of your own funds. That's where I think a lot of people struggle. And the issue is now we see higher inflation. We see all the things that are occurring right now. And, you know, many times we want to say well, we need to invest more aggressively or we need to do something uh, to keep up with this inflation. Well, the problem is we're seeing valuations more than twice what their, their average is. Um, things are very expensive. We're in a rising rate environment. Bonds aren't technically doing what they historically have done. Many people forget. I mean, we've been in a big bond, you know, bull market. And not to say that this is going to be something that's going to last forever because we're in a much different uh, period. I mean, you think about back in the 90s, we were actually shoring up debt, um, you know, had very little from a deficit perspective. 
things were substantially different when you look at a balance sheet of the of the U.S. Treasury and you look at it today. Right. And so what we need to also consider is is that how do we you know, how can we be nimble and flexible in our spending and what we do? Now, historically, I can say that that most of the time you guys are really intuitive. And what I mean by that is that if we have a bad year in markets, a lot of times, you know, we'll see somebody cut back. Hey, we're going to spend X amount on travel. We are going to do these additional things. And, you know, I'll have people call and say, you know what, Danny, let's go ahead and reduce our expenses. Uh, you know, we're not doing what we historically have done. Um, and then on the other side, when things are really good, we typically do spend a little bit more. So that's why I want people to be really cautious with that 4% rule, because I think you have to be extremely flexible. You have to understand that, you know, not every year will you be able to take 4% and not dip into the portfolio or your principal over time. Now, hopefully you have the wind at your back and you can, you can build up a handful of really good years to, you know, as you're, as you're making distributions, you're in retirement. And then at that point, you're going to have much a much greater buffer. The problem is if you go to retire right now, you have a pretty good headwind here. And the higher rates get, the worse this yeah. problem becomes. You know, and it's interesting too if you you know, you know people are funny uh, to me because, you know, they're complaining about, you know, low interest rates at half a percent. So now you get three you can go buy a 10-year treasury right now and get 3%. You know, like, well, 3%, that's not very much. Um, you know, this this was the thought back in 2007. Right, 2007. Why would I own a 10-year Treasury when I can invest in stocks and make seven, eight, nine, ten percent a year? Right, 10-year Treasury in 2007 was yielding north of five percent. So, you know, now now people are going, man, I wish I could get a five percent bond. Right? You know, that that'd be great if I could just get five percent a year. I mean, I don't, I can't tell you how many people I've talked to is like, I just need, if I could just get five percent a year, I'm good. Right. And so, you know, if I could buy bonds all day long at 5%, they're fine. Except in that point in time, 5% wasn't good enough because I could get more out of stocks. Back in, I remember back in 1999, 2000, brokered CDs. These are CDs sold through FDIC insured, SIPC insured uh, Wall Street firms like Schwab, Fidelity, et cetera. And through, through your brokerage firm, you could buy these CDs. Brokered CDs were paying 8% or more in 2000, could not sell them to save my life, right? Nobody wanted an 8% CD because I could get make so much more out of the markets. Nowadays, if you could get an 8% CD, how many would take it? Raise your hand. Well, well uh, not if you're driving. Don't raise yeah. your hand if you're driving. Well, a, but lot of, a lot of people would take it, but if you got something that said 8%, you should probably run because we know, okay, if you're going to get 8% right now, well, What's really behind the hood? Well, yeah, the hood? but back then that was in. Yeah. Uh, but you know, ten-year Treasury rates back then were you know north of six and a half. Yep. Right. So CDs were running the same way. So my point is, is that even though you're looking at three percent interest rates today and going, oh my gosh, rates are three percent, and and look, mortgage rates right now are north of five. It's it's going to be a problem for the economy because of all the debt. But it's an, it's important to keep in perspective. Three percent is still exceptionally low interest rates, long on a long term basis. But it won't support, unfortunately, a sixty forty, or this idea of a four percent withdrawal rule and trying to run a semi conservative portfolio. Yeah, and looking back, you know, I, I can think early two thousands, mid two thousands, um, people we were finding six percent CDs, and they were kicking and screaming like, "This is terrible, six percent." And when they matured, people were literally almost crying 
Mm-hmm. They're like, I can't find anything. What am I going to do for income? Yeah. I mean, there's nothing out here anymore. Yeah, Things were so low. And so, you know, we have to be cautious and, and remember that there are going to be, the, the tide will change. It's going to go out. It's going to come in. And, you know, when it does, you need to be prepared. Yeah. I mean, look, if, if, if I could, if I'm happy at 3%, I'm buying 3% treasuries all day long right now because they're not going to last long. Yeah. You know, we'll be back to, you know, we'll be talking probably in the next year or two talking about half a percent interest rates on 10-year treasuries. And, you know, then it's going to be back to the same problem about where do I put capital. But this is, this is just a function of, of the debt. It's a function of economic growth. It's a function of long-term inflation. And, and that's where we are kind of in the market environment right now. And that's not going to get any better. It's just going to keep getting worse because we've just chosen policies, you know, politically that are not beneficial to long-term economic growth. But again, so so here's the takeaway from this: is that a million dollars isn't going to do it for you in retirement. Take your take what you have in your lifestyle living requirements today. So if you need eighty thousand dollars a year to live on, what's uh, Social Security roughly about twenty twenty five thousand a year, give or take? Yeah, I want to say the average recipient. I think it's eighteen hundred bucks. Put me on the spot here. Okay, it's so, not much. Actually, so, it's a little so, bit less than that. Okay, so let's just call it two thousand. Let's be generous, right? You're real generous. Okay, so if you need eighty thousand dollars a year, subtract out twenty thousand a year or so for your Social Security. Um, that means you're going to need two million dollars in the bank at three percent to make the other sixty thousand up a year. So a, I mean, that just goes to I mean, just yeah. putting it in perspective. Now you go, man, two million dollars. That's a lot of money. It's it's between fifteen and sixteen hundred actually. Okay, way less. But yeah. So so there you go though. But that's the, that's the idea. And again, so when you start looking at and when you start to see these articles on the web, it's like how to save your way to a million dollars. That's great. It's not going to get you there. And also what people forget to tell you is that how to save your way to a million dollars. Because if you have a million dollars in retirement, you can make X dollars amount to live on. People forget that the cost of living and the cost of that value of a million dollars is going to be vastly different 30 years from now. So when our kids save up a million dollars 30 years from now, once we adjust that for inflation, the cost of living and everything else, they're going to need multiples of millions of dollars to generate the same rate of income that you can generate today on the million dollars in your living standard today. That's what we always forget to tell people, unfortunately. Well, and I think it's important though, to understand that you need to have multiple avenues for that income, right? You look at Social Security, you look, do you have any pension benefits, which I know those are, those, know, those it's are like gone. a dinosaur, right? They're, yep. they're almost extinct. But, you know, do you have any other types of benefits? Do you have an annuity income stream? Do you have other areas that's coming that are, you know, incomes coming in, rental income. These are all things that need to be considered and put together because you may not have that million dollars in the bank, but you may still be fine. Yeah. You may still be able to retire. The average retiree's expenses are about $47,000, Lance, well below what most families spend. Mm-hmm. Now, granted, it's typically a one or two person household, much different than raising a family of four. Um, you know, or, or whatever, however many kids, I guess. And that's the that and that's and that is the case until you get to the latter part of your lifestyle where all the healthcare medical costs kick in because you didn't up. take care of your health and you're overweight and you suffer from diabetes well, and, and you spend a lot of your time on medical expenses. That's right. And we actually put that in the plan. So we have at 85, everybody actually starts spending more because we do find that those expenses go up significantly. Yeah. My financial plan has a health and fitness program embedded in it that you are rigorously required you know, to follow or I send a German woman to your house and say, you will do it. Your, your financial plan says you can never retire, Lance. <laughs> 
I know. Sorry, bud. We're, we're going to work on that one. <laughs> anyway, all right, got to wrap up this show for the day. Um, Danny, Danny Ratliff, of course. Get by the website, realinvestmentadvice.com. Send us your questions, comments, emails. Let us know what we can do to help you out. Also, uh, we'll kind of navigate through the day. Get our daily market commentary. It's out every morning on the website. It's out now. Uh, so if you go to our website, realinvestmentadvice.com, click on the daily commentary link and get our latest daily commentary. We have a market trading update every day there for you to keep you apprised of what's going on with the markets. Weekly newsletter, more, realinvestmentadvice.com. See you back here tomorrow. That's